podcast number 14 here on The Voice of the Arts. Yours truly, Joe Weber, your host. On this podcast, I'm going to play a couple of interviews I had done in the past for shows on 1690 AM WMLB in the city of Atlanta, where I had lived for almost 40 years before following my children out to Southern California. First, we'll hear an interview done with Charles Levin, who played the highly anxious Moyle on Seinfeld. A Moyle, for those unfamiliar with the term, is the man who does the ritual circumcision for male Jewish children upon the eighth day after their birth. Charles Levin sadly passed away almost a year ago after his car became stuck in an untamed wilderness area in Oregon not far from his home. He had a long career in TV, including appearances on such storied shows as Hill Street Blues, L.A. Law, and Alice. First, we'll hear the short scene from Seinfeld, and then the interview. The Mitzvah of the Bris. Is the baby gonna cry like that? Is that how the baby cries with that loud, sustained, squealing cry? Because that could pose a problem. Do you have any control over your child? Because this will be the time to exercise it when baby is crying in the high-pitched, squealing tone that could drive you insane! Did you find the place all right? Did I find it all right? Could you send me to a more dangerous neighborhood? I'm dreading walking back to the subway. Someone shouldn't smack me over the head and steal my bag. Because I'll be lying there and people will spit on me and empty my pockets. I'll be lying in the gutter like a bum, like a dog, like a mutt, like a mongrel, like an animal. God forbid anybody should help me or call an ambulance. Oh, no, that's too much trouble to pick up a phone and press a few buttons. Ah, what's the point? Oh, yeah. Darling, you see where that glass is? You see how that glass is near the edge of the table? You've got the whole table there to put the glass. Why you chose the absolute edge. So half the glass is hanging off the table. You breathe and that glass falls over. And then you got broken glass on the carpet. Embedded in the carpet fibers, deep, deep in the shag. Broken glass, bits of broken glass you can never get up. You can't get it up with a vacuum cleaner. Even on your hands and knees with a magnifying glass, you'll never get all the pieces. And then you think you got it all. And then one day, two years later, you're walking barefoot, you step on a piece of broken glass and you kill yourself. Is that what you want? I don't think that's what you want, is it, do you, huh? Uh, he's very highly recommended, so... You're holding the baby. No, no, no. Hello? Who's holding the baby? Who's holding the baby? Jerry is. Jerry, do you want to... Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm holding the baby. Okay, go. I'm going. I'm, I am. I'm going. Don't push me. Okay, you sit there. Now I need the baby. Bring me the baby. I need the baby! <laughs> I'm not going to let... Taylor! Hey, what are you doing? Come back here! We're performing a bris here, not a burlesque show. This is not a school play. This is not a baggy pants fuss. This is a bris. 
A sacred ancient ceremony symbolizing the covenant between God and Abraham. Or something. <laughs> no, don't touch anything. Don't touch a thing. Okay, okay. I could have been a kosher butcher like my brother. But money's good. And it's got a union with benefits. And cows don't have families. You make a mistake with a cow, you move on with your life. Anyway. That final laugh that you just heard was the result of George Costanza keeling over in a faint after witnessing the Moyle approaching the baby being held by Jerry Seinfeld. This was after he offered to make a woman guest next to him feel more comfortable who had never witnessed a brisk before. The woman was a surgeon, a good deal more comfortable than George at the sight of blood. guest today at WMLB is Charles Levin. Charles Levin is an actor known to many people for his performance in the role of the Moyle on the Seinfeld episode about the Briss, or ritual circumcision. Chuck? Good morning, Joe. Good morning. Tell us about how that episode was put together. How much of that was improvised by you and how much was written? Well, actually, all of it was written. Um, it was, um, for a guest star, it was a massive role. It was 26 pages, um, which uh, comprised most of the script. It was uh, written not by Larry uh, David, but by Larry Charles, who um, at that time was one of the major writers for the Seinfeld show. He's gone on to become a director of uh, Borat and uh, Bruno, and he's hilarious. He's absolutely hilarious. So I wasn't winging it at all. Um, as a matter of fact, I was uh, held very, very strictly to a script. It, it just sort of flowed. I did exactly what I had done in the audition, which they enjoyed very much. They laughed. And then they went ahead and cast another actor who was a little more recognizable, I guess, and had a, had a, a name. Alan Garfield, and, right? Yeah, Alan Garfield, exactly. Yeah. And uh, Jerry didn't... Uh, care for the performance. Alan was doing it very seriously. And uh, when Jerry tried to get him to lighten up and make it a little wild and crazy, uh, Alan, Alan didn't care for that. And so I got a call, and I showed up at the second day of rehearsal. That's interesting that, that Garfield was picked over you, because I couldn't imagine anybody doing it better. And, well, uh, thank you very much. It, it's it's one of the things that happens on television, or did happen on television a lot, uh, not this past decade, but I would guess uh, somewhat earlier, is that they would really try to find uh, stars uh, to play all the guest star parts, if they could. Mm-hmm. Especially a part of this size, they wanted someone who was instantly recognizable. I was just fortunate to be at the right place at the right time. I've interviewed one other person who had a cameo or a, you know a, a, an appearance on Seinfeld, and that was mm-hmm. Philip Baker Hall. Oh, golly, he was hilarious. He, he was. He drove Jerry crazy. 
he was wonderful as Mr. Bookman. And uh, I interviewed him about three years ago, and it was delightful because he was another guy who, like yourself, who's had a lot of work but isn't immediately recognizable. He kept pointing at Jerry and uh, emphasizing every word. And right. Jerry has a terrible time not breaking up. Uh, I, he breaks up in every scene. Philip Baker Hall explained that every time he swished that raincoat around, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. the, the, uh, the, you know, Jerry cracked up. And you could tell because they had to edit the laughter, and the laughter was kind of jerky, just like with your performance. Uh, it sounds like the audience and the actors kind of got out of control. You know something? Uh, they they didn't edit anything. Um, all they did, because of the director, who, uh, I forget Tom's last name, something like Chardoff or Chir- uh, he, Chiron, uh, C-H-E-R-O-N-E-S, I think. Or- Tom Chiron. He, yeah. he knew exactly at that point, what Jerry was going to do. And so he would cut away, or he would block it so the Jerry was across the room. So when Jerry started to laugh or sat down to watch the scene, he wasn't on camera. They they showed one entire take. They didn't, yeah. We never did it twice. Chuck, you have made a, a successful career in TV, in film, and I, I don't know much about if you've done you know live theater, but... You're not a household name, and I had a heck of a time tracking you down. I guess that's because you're retired, but evidently you've made a pretty good living. You live on a horse farm in Oregon now. Um, yes, I do. I do. Um, yeah, I was very fortunate. Um, I I started working very young, um, uh, not as a child, but I was around 22, 23 years old, and uh, I had come out of drama school, and I worked steadily for like 35 years. Uh, uh, I was never uh, sidelined for any other reason uh, except uh, the, the birth of children. But uh, normally, I, I was always working. I was very fortunate. And I, I wasn't compelled to make a, a big name for myself. I, th- that was not my goal. I, I was trained for the theater. I, I worked on Broadway. I worked in repertory theater for many years. Uh, and uh, I actually taught theater at Harvard um, about 15 years ago. Wow. I, I, I wanted a good career. I wanted to uh, try everything that I could, but I'm not a leading man. You know, I just, um, that's that's not uh, who I am. And I found that sometimes that was really helpful because I, a lot of the great parts that you can play are, are character parts. And uh, that's what I was, a character actor. I guess the point, I'm, the, the question I'm I'm nibbling around is you can make a good living in theater if you're, uh, not delusional, you know. If you know what you're, if you know what kind of roles you can play, um, y- you can, y- you can today, especially in theater. Um, uh, the United States is amazing because there are so many wonderful theater companies, permanent theater companies, uh, scattered all over. And uh, they, yeah, but the theater they, companies can't are are usually pretty. You know, threadbare in terms of funding, but but in TV and. Uh, and in film, it seems that people can make a living without being a star. Yes, it is possible. It's harder today because, again, there's so much um, product because of cable and also because of the way the economy has gone. The so-called middle-class actor has sort of disappeared. In my day, you know, if I did, let's say, L.A. Law, 
Well, then I would do uh, Hill Street. I mean, I, I would go on to do uh, uh, Night Quarter. Uh, in other words, people would use you over and over and over again. That has sort of changed. Uh, today, everybody wants somebody fresh, new, and so it's more difficult, I think, to build that kind of career where you're constantly working. Well, if, I mean, if you did an episode, let's say you did like six episodes of Hill Street Blues, what, right. ki- what kind of money would you make back then? Well, I was sort of fortunate because my roommate in college was David Milch. And David, as you know, uh, at that time was writing Hill Street Blues, and he went on to write um, Deadwood and uh, many, many other award-winning shows. So when I walked into to audition, David said, well, we'll make you regular. <laughs> and, um, so I, I, got, I made about... Uh, $3,000 an episode, but mm-hmm. it's not so much that initial money, it's the reruns. Oh, you get, you get royalties on the reruns. You get, you get, uh, you get royalties, and um, it's an annuity. Um, that one Seinfeld episode, because it became sort of like a modern, cla- you know, a classic in the sense that they showed it all the time in rerun. Yeah. It, it, it paid for a lot of college educations among the kids, you know. So you de- was... you deserved every penny and more, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Thanks. Uh, unfortunately, with um, uh, residuals, they go down over the years. Oh, do they? How what? Oh, how, yeah. do, how do the residuals work? What is it? Well, it, depending uh, depending on the markets and how many markets it's used, and uh, if it's broadcast or if it's cable. Um, the the money changes, but uh, normally, you know, you can you can a good show like that can bring you a hundred grand over you know five ten years, and um, that's amazing. It, it's uh, it keeps us older actors alive. You know, today uh, when I was working, because it was mo- it was all broadcast, they they really did pay a lot more. They had top of show. They didn't pay scale. Mm-hmm. Scale is something that's worked out as the union minimums for these kinds of for, for whatever kind of show you're doing, and then your agent, of course, takes ten percent. Today, because uh, producers are, are much more active and there is more product and the economy's not as good, uh, they pay scale plus ten, which is, you know, it not scale is, is is hefty, but it's not quite the same. In the old days, you could make a lot more money. The result, as you see, is that there are many, many actors now who cross over from movies to television to stage. And in the old days, that just was never done. We're talking with Chuck Levin. Charles Levin has been acting for a long time. He was born in 1949. Uh, He's known here at WMLB primarily for his stellar role as the Moyle on the episode (laughs) The Briss. As I've said to to Chuck when I contacted him first that I think his performance was akin to Isaac Stern playing Girl with the Flaxen Hair by Debussy on the violin. But, uh, wow, that's an amazing comparison. Thank you so much. Um, I, uh, I'm a Heifetz fan myself. But, are you? Uh, um, yes, yeah. Well, no, it's, a be- it's a beautiful piece of music, no matter how it you really slice is. it. It really is. It's a song. It's a song. Right. It's, you know, it's, it's one of the few times that someone composed a 
a beautiful song that could be played by any instrument. Uh, uh, there are so many renditions of it. It's amazing. I, I hope that my uh, my performance is like that song. Uh, it makes me laugh. If, if I can laugh at myself, boy, that then I know I was funny. No, you and, captured... Uh, Larry Charles wrote something down on paper, and you you brought the character to life. You you added the spark that Thank you. that made him seem all of a piece, even though the character is a very <laughs> one of my favorite parts is where he they meet in the hospital and they're insulting each other, and uh, you you get the very flincher. You're the flincher, <laughs> right? Right. You're yes. the flincher, and. Uh, and Jerry replies, "You, you know, you should be reported. You know, you're a menace, and and you say you're threatening my livelihood. Here's my card. <laughs> right, I could cut you up like a you know, smoked sturgeon. Uh, it, it was problematic, uh, and this is where Larry Charles, Larry Charles, and I collaborated because um, he was concerned that the end of the big scene where." I'm going in to, to circumcise the baby, and I'm shaking like a leaf, and, and Jerry's petrified. And then they cut to uh, uh, George collapsing, you know, having seen blood. I, th- I think, at least the way the sequence I've seen it, is he faints after you say to Jerry, I should have been a kosher butcher. My brother, like my brother, he's good. they've got benefits. Uh, cows don't have families. You make families. a mistake with a cow, you go on with your <laughs> right, life. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's this shortcut where uh, Tom does a close-up of me approaching the baby, and I'm like a complete, you know, maniacal <laughs> uh, uh, right. Dr. Frankenstein. And I'm quivering, and, uh, and Jerry is backing away but holding the child out. And then they come to George collapsing, and Larry, uh, Larry, Charles and I, uh, Larry David said, you know, I don't want them to worry about the baby. Oh. You know, I want them to know that the baby was okay. Uh-huh. So uh, that's the one time I improvised the line. I, I didn't improvise it. I, you know, I said, well, what if I said, the baby's perfect. The baby came out fine. You're <laughs> the flincher. And uh, <laughs> right. he loved that. He said, yeah. yeah, that takes the curse off of yeah. it. I'm glad to know Larry David has those humanitarian instincts because sometimes <laughs> when I watch him, I, I, I get a, a very misanthropic picture. Well, you know something? He is a sweetheart. He, he is uh, antithetical to that character to a great extent. Uh, very quiet, very soft-spoken. He has a great smile. And he's a sweet guy, you know. Yeah. But uh, as head of that show, I mean, they, I mean, the pressure was incredible on both of them because they wrote everything. And uh, they wanted to make sure that it, you know, that it worked and, and it stayed, it, it, it's television, of course. And, yeah. and they didn't want to, you know, cross the line into fear or mutilation of children, things like that. Charles, I I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with me. My uh, pleasure. My pleasure, Joe, really. Listen, I'll tell you something. I love Atlanta. It's one of my favorite towns. The best food, bar none, bar, no city comes close. Really? I was there quite a, quite a while ago, actually. I worked with Hulk Hogan in a wrestling movie there oh, yeah. during the actor's strike many years uh-huh. ago. And I was one of the fortunate ones, but I did fall in love with that city. Thanks so much, and and I, I promise you'll be hearing from me. All right, Joey. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.
Unfortunately, we never got a chance to visit again before Chuck Levin's untimely death this past summer. His car evidently got stuck in a wilderness area not too far from his home in Oregon, and he got lost and disoriented and died in the woods. The next actor we're going to feature is Philip Baker Hall. Like Chuck Levin, he's had a long career working quite steadily in theater, film, and television. First, we'll play an audio clip from his appearance as a library detective on Seinfeld. Let's stop right there, though, and ask ourselves, is there really such a thing as a library cop? Well, I'm not sure, but whoever wrote his speeches channeled every hard-nosed big city TV detective since the birth of television cop shows. The writing is hilarious, and the studio audience was further amused by Seinfeld's inability to keep a straight face. Well, I'm glad you're here so we can get this all straightened out. Would you like a cup of tea? You got any coffee? Coffee? Yeah, coffee. No, I don't drink coffee. Yeah, you don't drink coffee? How about instant coffee? No, I don't have... You don't have any instant coffee? Well, I don't normally... Who doesn't have instant coffee? I don't. You buy a jar of Folgers crystals, you put it in the cupboard, you forget about it. And later on, when you need it, it's there. It lasts forever. It's freeze-dried. Freeze-dried crystals. Really? I'll have to remember that. You took this book out in 1971. Yes, and I returned it in 1971. Yeah, 71. That was my first year on the job. Bad year for libraries. Bad year for America. Hippies burning library cards. Abby Huffman telling everybody to steal books. I don't judge a man by the length of his hair, the kind of music he listens to. Rock was never my bag. But you put on a pair of shoes when you walk into the New York Public Library, fella. Look, Mr. Bookman. I, I returned that book. I remember it very specifically. You're a comedian. You make people laugh. I try. You think this is all a big joke, don't you? I don't. I saw you on TV once. I remembered your name from my list. I looked it up. Sure enough, it checked out. You think because you're a celebrity that somehow the law doesn't apply to you, that you're above the law? Certainly not. Well, let me tell you something funny, boy. <laughs> you know that little stamp? The one that says New York Public Library? Well, that may not mean anything to you, but that means a lot to me. One whole hell of a lot. Sure, go ahead. Laugh if you want to. I've seen your type before. Flashy, making the scene, flaunting convention. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. What's this guy making such a big stink about old library books? Well, let me give you a hint, Junior. Maybe we can live without libraries, people like you and me. Maybe. Sure, we're too old to change the world. But what about that kid sitting down, opening a book right now in a branch of the local library and finding drawings of peepees and wee-wees and a cat in the hat and the five Chinese brothers? Doesn't he deserve better? Look, if you think this is about overdue fines and missing books, you better think again. This is about that kid's right to read a book without getting his mind warped. Or maybe that turns you on, Seinfeld. Maybe that's how you get your kicks. You and your good time buddies. Well, I got a flash for you, joy boy. Party time is over. You got seven days, Seinfeld. That is one week. Anyway, I hope there's no hard feelings. 
Hard feelings? What do you know about hard feelings? <laughs> Ever have a man die in your arms? Ever kill somebody? What is your problem? What's my problem? Punks like you, that's my problem. <laughs> and you better not screw up again, Seinfeld, because if you do, I'll be all over you like a pit bull on a poodle. That is one tough monkey. <laughs>
started out in life doing something else other than acting. No, I actually started in 1960 as a theater actor. And then I usually track those things on the internet. Uh-huh. But I was in New York for 16, it's always 17 years. Oh. Uh, as a theater actor. And I had a, uh, I thought I'd I had a full career as a, as a theater actor before I ever did a movie or a television show. Really? Yeah, what, what, uh, what was some of the plays you were in? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's like the movies, I can't even. So it's a ways back there. I just, I don't know, 35 or 40 plays. Between 1960 and 1975. Uh-huh. I came out to Los Angeles in 
Our guest, Philip Baker Hall, who played Detective Bookman, a library cop on the 22nd Seinfeld episode. That was interesting what he said about everyone being convinced that they were soon to be canceled. Maybe the creators figured, let's pull out all the stops and not try to play it safe and look at the winner they came up with. Well, folks, that's going to wrap up podcast number 14. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. This is Joe Weber saying so long here from the Voice of the Arts. Thank you.